There is a psychotherapist uh, writer named Irvin Yalom who is well known for very generously sharing the insights that he has developed and cultivated in his decades as a therapist. And one of these books he writes is intentionally about handing off these lessons to a new generation of therapists. Short, compact, easily digestible, but still very deep chapters. One of them is titled, You Must Have Here and Now Rabbit Ears. Here and now, rabbit ears. What he's saying is that the interaction between clinician and client, between therapist and the person who is seeking out the therapy, what happens in that space between you, between us, is as valuable for growth and insight and behavior change as is anything that has happened prior to that in the client's life. That what arises there in that moment that we must have here and now rabbit ears for can lead to remarkable discovery and growth. Now, if you know anything at all about me, um, there's a reason also as well that here and now rabbit ears resonated with me because um, how I came to know my wife before she was my wife, before I knew her as Teresa, her profile name was Rabbit Ears. On the, it wasn't even an app back in 2003 on the website that we met on. Rabbit ears because she works in television, and rabbit ears, yes, because, as some of you know, she has literal rabbits. Now, we have literal rabbits, and two weeks from now, on Easter, you can be thrilled about this, adults, your kids will be, but the adults can be as well, too. We will have, every single Easter, one of our live Easter bunnies here, and you can coo over him, and it'll be a lot of fun. But I digress. So Yalom, in this book, handing off these lessons that he has learned tells a story about one of his clients who has had a very fraught and difficult relationship with her dad. Nothing quite seems to work out. They always seem to be at loggerheads with each other, never quite understanding one another, never quite connecting. And and at one point in their lives, in an attempt to try and come together over that um, breach that has separated them from each other, they decide that he will drive her back to college for a semester. And they take this drive together. And she looks out her window, Yalom's client does, and she remarks openly with some sense of fascination and happiness that running along the side of this road where they are driving is an unspoiled stream with beautiful trees and flowers growing alongside it, and just just gives her such a sense of joy. And her father, in the driver's seat, remarks, that ravine is filled with nothing but garbage. And she feels this sense of crestfallenness. And it just kind of gets added into this narrative, this story between them, that it is just impossible for them to see the world in the same way. And so they sit in silence the entire rest of the journey as she goes back to college. She telling a story about him, how grousy he is, how negative he is, how he can't see the beauty in things. And she also, within her own experience relating this to Irvin Yalom, seeing herself 
tell a story about herself as her father sees her, that she is naive and only looks on the bright side of life. Yalom shares this in this book as a reminder, as a calling to attention, something that all human beings do, which is telling stories about other people's experiences, thoughts, feelings, and lives. We love to get inside of each other's heads. <laughs> There's an evolutionary reason for us. It helps to literally keep us alive, to imagine what other people are experiencing. It's part of empathy. And so at times, that story that we can tell or at least imagine about other people's lives can be profoundly wonderful. Sometimes it connects us with each other. I mean, sometimes people say, I know them so well, I love them so deeply that I can finish their sentences and they can finish mine. But (laughs) this telling of stories can so often be a projection, even worse than a projection, an objectification of the other person's life making them less than real, robbing their reality of its presence. It can be so easy for us by habit to fill in the blank of each other's lives by rote. Why do we do this? Because being alive is difficult, right? And there can be a lot of anxiety and insecurity in our lives. I was someone who first tasted anxiety very early in my life, and it's been with me, better now than before, but for pretty much all of my existence. I remember the first time when I got in touch with what this really cost me, which is connection with another person's reality. It was 1978 or 1979, and this was at the pool that my family would go to every summer. And this was July 4th, and they would have this contest. Every July 4th, uh, this is the greased watermelon story. They would grease up a watermelon with oil, canola oil, something like that, and they would toss this large watermelon into the deep end. And uh, at that point, uh, hopefully now it's all the parents, but at that point it was reserved just for the dads, and they would dive in, and the dads have, well, probably had something to drink by this point in the story as well, too, and they dive in, and they are supposed to collect this oiled watermelon, and the person who gets it wins. They have captured the greased watermelon. It's more humane than the greased pig story, if you know that, where you have to capture a greased pig, but also pigs don't swim, so regardless, this is a watermelon. And my dad was one of those who dove in. And the next thing I remember, a few minutes go by... And I see my dad seated on the side of the well of the deep end, the diving pool. And the story I tell myself is my dad is a quitter. That somehow, for some reason, in my eight or nine-year-old mind, he has let me down. And I leave the pool area, too ashamed of him or myself or whatever it was. And I walk back five minutes later, and I find out the truth. My dad was taking a breather. No one was, I mean, you're in 12 feet of water and you're trying to capture a greased watermelon. This is not easy work. My dad dove back in and became the dad who caught the greased watermelon and won the July 4th contest. This is sometimes when we tell a story about other people's experience the cost of what we will miss, what actually goes on, what really happens. Sometimes it's our own sense of discomfort our own dis-ease, 
our own lack of being present within our own lives because our experience can be so painful. That leads us to tell a story about other people's experiences and the ethical costs can be terrible. Uh, not too long ago, or actually maybe a couple of years ago, I became familiar with it again recently. I saw this on a recovery blog that I read. I think this is terribly important. When I get lonely these days, I think, so be lonely. Learn your way around loneliness. Make a map of it. Sit with it for once in your life. Welcome to the human experience, but never again use another person's body or emotions as a scratching post for your own unfulfilled yearnings. Real empathy, accurate connection, means first being invested in what another person's experience is or may be, even when we have no clue about it, but asking it, asking with a real deep sense of curiosity. This is how we keep our relationships green and alive and growing and receptive. And by the way, when it comes to psychotherapy or it comes to the vast political differences between us sometimes, more studies here that I could possibly list. They all point to one thing, that if what we think another person needs or in their struggle might help them is some kind of change, the first step, always most powerful, before anyone changes, especially in relationships, is that they feel accepted. That they know that their values are known, or at least that we're curious enough about them to ask. And by the way, none of this has to do with giving up our own values. It just means we have to allow space for another person to have their experience and to be seen by us in a true and deep way. I think this commitment to opening up space between us in our relationships, especially our most significant relationships, is so powerful because this is where the filling in the gaps happens most often. The people we live with, the people we call family, the people we call a part of our community, we start to see them by rote rather than an unfolding process of the universe with flesh on, come alive, just like ourselves. This is how we keep our relationships green. T.S. Eliot, the famous poet, does this wonderful thing where he does what poets do, which is take poetic license. And he says this. He says, what we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them. And they have changed since then. To pretend that they and we are the same is a useful and convenient social convention which must sometimes be broken. We must also always remember that at every meeting, we are meeting a stranger. I love that. That is a spiritual practice. To say even that with the people we are most familiar with, maybe the people we're spending our lives with, no, I don't want to finish your sentences. There is something within you that I haven't seen yet in this moment if we are still meeting, and there is something in that that requires hospitality, a real and radical sense of openness. In fact, this is profoundly a part of our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition. I would say all spiritually progressive traditions. Here we call it in our values and beliefs, the burning bush is blazing everywhere. That revelation is unsealed. That we are not done and not finished and neither is life. None of us, if we're here and breathing in this life, has had all our blanks filled in. One of the things I love this past week, 
uh, Wednesday. What was Wednesday? 314. Pi Day. I don't think a lot about math. I should think more about math. But I know what Pi Day is because I like actual pi if you'd show that slide. The ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter across. It is the same pi, 3.14, for all circles throughout all time, regardless how small or how large they are. Except you probably know this, right? It's not 3.14. This is actually more what it looks like, non-repeating sequence of numbers, and that doesn't even capture the smallest part of what pi is. This most recent week, I read on a, a blog that works in data and numbers, and they said there's now a program that runs pi, this sequence of non-repeating random numbers, out to 22 trillion digits. It boggles the mind, and anything that boggles the mind is a great spiritual practice. <laughs> Because it reminds us our minds are not intended to get around everything and not to intended to be reading other people's minds. I have challenge enough reading my own mind. I imagine you do too. But to want to imagine other people's minds that we know what's going on in there, it reminds me that in fact in a very liberating way, I will never get it. <laughs> I will never fully get you in the same way that you will never fully get me. And that's where the real freedom and fun begins. As the Zen tradition says in its wonderfully provocative way, this is all just one big continuous mistake. <laughs> now, you can decide for yourself whether that is frustrating or liberating. I find it liberating. I will never get this. None of us will exactly right. And in community, this can be the practice that calls us to presence with each other that invites us to turn towards each other with a profound sense of heartful curiosity and ask, not tell, how is it with you? One of our key learning texts here at Wellsprings comes from the Unitarian Universalist poet Mary Oliver from her incredible poem that I'll spend the rest of my life unpacking, The Summer Day. It forms the basis of our most looked forward to pre-Sunday Thanksgiving, the Sunday before Thanksgiving service, every single year. And it's a question. It's not a statement. And she gets to the heart of it with the sentence before the sentence, doesn't everything die at too last, too soon? And she asks the question to end the poem. Tell me. Tell me. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? This is not a neutral intellectual curiosity, is it? This asks us to really pay attention to each other's lives. Tell me, what is it you will do with your one wild and precious life? This is an act of love, and I find that it brings to light and brings to life the kind of curiosity that is an amazing antidote to boredom. <laughs> So many of us struggle with being bored, but the truth is, if we are curious, we don't have to be bored at all. Curiosity is the gatekeeper of wonder, how real love arises. And it is also, to borrow that phrase much used these days, curiosity is how love wins. <laughs> I don't know what's going on back there, but they sound like they're having fun. 
that's our owl, our teen class. It was awesome at the uh, at the 9:30 service. Just as I got to this point in the message as well, too, uh, there was a, a toddler who was just squawking and finding their voice, and it was tremendous. May we all find our voices. This curiosity, this discovery around and with each other—it's the heart of spiritual community, and it's the heart of so much of I think our world needs right now. So much that divides us, so many storytelling about others' experiences. And so recently, I have received a, a wonderful reminder of this from a five unexpected prophets. Maybe some of you have as well, too. They're these guys. I wasn't particularly, like, not looking forward to or looking forward to Queer Eye for the Straight Guy coming back. I loved it when it was on in the early, what, 2000s, 2003 to 2006. Came back this time as Queer Eye because it's not just for the straight guy anymore if you've seen any of these episodes. But right from the beginning, if you watch this, you know that something different is happening this time. One of the Fab Five says... Last time it was about tolerance. This time it's about acceptance. And the queer eye men are still expert in style, cooking, grooming, culture design, all this kind of stuff. Except this is not a makeover show. This is a revealing show. This is a show in which not just the individual men they're working with, but they themselves are asked into this process of revealing and showing their true selves. Uh, one of the Fab Five, um, uh, Caramo, he uh, at one point was talking all about vulnerability and the, p- the connection between courage and vulnerability and heartfulness. I'm like, he sounds like a social worker. He is. <laughs> Actually, I was like, wow, this guy sounds like Brene Brown because he's talking about all that stuff of, of risking what it is to allow your life to be seen and witnessed by other people. As we kind of break the shell that protects us against each other and against life. What I love so much about this time around, this queer eye, is that these five men are real to us. Just as real as the realness they are asking from the guys that they work with. At one point, one of the stories, it's all shot in and around Atlanta, Georgia. One of the guys they're working with is a heavily overburdened father, family of six, living in this tiny little house, and they remake everything, and they're deeply religious. And so Bobby, who's on my far right, your left, when they're repotting some plants and some soil, keeping it green, outside of this house that they're redoing, starts talking about their faith experiences growing up, and Bobby talks about what it was like to this deeply religious, very conservative man, about what it was like to grow up in a faith tradition in which he tried as hard as he could to fit himself into the boxes that were prescribed for him because he loved his church. And then eventually he had to recognize he had to make a choice for his life and the truth of who he was or decide with his church. And he made the right choice and he left, but it was a deeply sad choice. The man who I mentioned before is African-American. If you've been in Atlanta ever, you know that to be in Atlanta is to be caught in terrible traffic at certain times. And he and the man they're working with, helping to redesign his life, is a southern police officer, very conservative. And the two of them caught in traffic with each other start to talk about 
They're different experiences. And Caramo talks about how afraid he is of the police as an African-American and gay man. And you can see the light go on for both of them as they become real and vulnerable with each other. That there is some recognition of the complexity of each other's lives. I think in seven of the eight shows, I was in tears. And one of them, I was absolutely blubbering. That's episode four, if you haven't seen it. If you have Netflix, please watch it. If you don't have Netflix, find someone who has Netflix and please watch it. I am not overstating this when I say that these kinds of interactions, yes, even prepackaged into a show between 42 and 45 minutes each time, is an actual vision of heaven. Not as a place, but as a way of being in which we can be known and know as we are known. Which brings me back to the story that I began this message with. Irvin Yalom's patient, his client. Years later now, her dad has passed on, and she's still struggling with the legacy of that challenging relationship. And she finds herself at one point back on that same highway, not headed to college this time, but that they drove together years ago. And this time she's in the driver's seat. And she sees that beautiful, unspoiled stream running along one side of the highway. And she also turns to the other direction. And she sees running along the other side of the highway a ditch filled with garbage. She and her father were both absolutely right about what they were seeing. They just saw totally different things. As we will so often in this life. That becomes the work, right? As Irvin Yalom says, to encourage ourselves to look out the other person's window and to see what's there. Asking, what do you see? not just assuming that's the same thing we are seeing. So often this is what love really comes down to. All we had to do was ask. All we had to do was inquire and become curious. And then we may find there that every one of our lives, every single one of our lives, is an un finished sentence in the ongoing grammar of grace. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Spirit or breath as we call it as well. We are reminded that unless truly we have come to the end, we don't ever master this breath. We can only take one and then give it back, take another and then give it back, take another and then give it back. This a reminder, even before we have any words for it, that this life is always in movement, is always in flux, is always unfinished, and that rather than finding this frustrating feeling that we need to master life or each other, we can open instead to this life. This ongoing experience and expression 
of ourselves as not separate from the universe, but a part of it, belonging to it, belonging to and with one another. And yes, of course, this is sometimes frightfully painful or painfully frightening. And still, we can be here in the circle of this community to learn to trust our curiosity, to learn to trust that this curiosity will lead us back to that belovedness, to that belonging that is our original blessing. Amen.